As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, September 9th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we'll dig into a few more recent debuts in the wake of late-season call-ups. We've got some hidden breakouts happening this season, so I want to get Keith's thoughts on a few of these players to see if what we're experiencing in 2022 is actually real or if it is an early peak for some guys that have reached new levels over the course of this season. Uh, But Keith, I want to start today with uh, a little bit of a rant. I, I find it frustrating that in the sport that we cover, when something amazing happens, we end up going down the rabbit hole that is usually just baseball history and fighting over things that are actually already decided. What could you possibly be talking about? I have no idea. Instead of just stopping to enjoy Aaron Judge's season, say, this is amazing. We haven't seen a season like this in a long time. Right. We have to go back into baseball history and debate Mm -hmm. who has the single season home run record. Which is not a debate, by the way. This is a fact. This is a fact. It is a fact. And if we want to have a conversation about steroids and Major League Baseball's failure to police them properly, great. We can have that conversation, but it doesn't need to be intertwined with Aaron Judge's 2022 season. It just doesn't. You know, what galled me the most was one of the tweets that got involved in this came from an MLB Network account, one of their shows, a show I've been on. I know the people on that show. I like them. This is not personal. But the league and the MLB Network, is an, it's an organ of the league. It just is. You know, and MLB.com is as well. I watch the network. I read the site. But the fact is, those it's owned by the league. They of All entities should not be doing this. They need to be above reproach on a subject like this. These are the facts. Now, you can debate whether you like it or not, right? You can, and honestly, you can believe someone other than Barry Bonds holds the single season home run record. You would be wrong. You know, it's the old, you're entitled to your own beliefs, but you're not entitled to your own facts. 
The fact is, he hit more home runs in a single season than any other player has. By a lot. Yeah. That's it. 73 home runs, 2001. That's it. That's the single season home run record. Yep. Barry Bonds has it. Nobody and, else does. Yeah. Somebody else breaks it. Somebody hits 74. It could happen. Honestly, if MLB really wants that to happen, just juice the ball again. Please don't do that. <laughs> no, I feel like we've come to a pretty good place where the ball seems like it's not nearly as springy as it was in 2019. The league is slugging close to 400. Home runs look pretty normal for the most part. When you look at a home run leaderboard, Judge is an outlier. This, right? I feel like this is – I know this game. A couple of years ago, it was like mm, – I mean, there's other things we can – and we have talked about that are you know maybe not great necessarily. But at least now, this looks more – in closer in line with historical standards, at least, or at least the standards of the last 30 years. You know, I will, I absolutely believe in 1993, MLB changed the baseball somewhere. We also had an expansion that year, and expansion years tend to also see big upticks in extreme performances, but just offense over the entire league bumped up from 92 to 93 and never really came back down. That's just kind of where we are now. Fine. Fine, I can live with this. But then, you know, 18, 19, whatever it was, the period, wherever the period was where they were using an even even more bouncy baseball was worse. This I can live with. And I, by the way, I don't have any problem with like any, it's not a moral problem, like philosophical issue with guys hitting 50 plus home runs. Sure, it's fun. I used to enjoy that when I was a kid. You know, somebody chases a record like that, or at least chases a big, it's not a record actually, but like a milestone, 50 home runs is a big deal. That's Great. I enjoy that stuff. I don't necessarily need to see the whole league slugging 560. Right. Yeah, that's going a little bit too far. You don't mm -hmm. need guys with 10 home run pop hitting 25 to 30 bombs. That isn't great. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of that. Yeah, we've lived through quite a bit of that. I do think the, the piece that Mike Petriello put out, putting some context to Judge's season and writing about the difficulty of facing a lot more pitchers than guys like Babe Ruth and Roger Maris did back when they set various home run records. I think that stuff's very interesting. Mm -hmm. The challenge of seeing 225 different pitchers to this point in the season compared to uh, seeing a quarter as many back in, in Babe Ruth's time, like that's, that's a unique challenge. We know pitchers throw harder. We know breaking stuff moves more. All those things are, are true as well. I, I think that's the, that's the engaging kind of conversation. If we want to talk about, where this fits into baseball history and and how impressive this is. But I don't think it's that hard to understand how impressive it is when you look at the actual home run leaderboard for this season. Aaron Judge is at 55, and the next closest batter is Kyle Schwarber at 36. That's a pretty telling indicator of just how much of a standout season this truly is in the context of what's happening right now. I'm a big believer in that. I mean, it, this never comes up in the major leagues, but often... I think I've written this. I've said this. You know, hey, so-and-so college player, junior college player, you know, is sometimes it's people asking, is he really a prospect? Is it, you know, I know of this guy. He's got the best stats on the team, for example. Is he a prospect? Or or otherwise, it'll be, hey, so-and-so's a prospect. And I'll go look and say, you know what? If you're a prospect at a, especially like a non-major conference school or certainly at a JUCO you should have the best stats on your team by a lot. You should be going full Aaron Judge just compared to your teammates. You know, there was one this year, and I liked Gavin Cross, who was the Royals pick at ninth overall from Virginia Tech, but he wasn't even close to the best performer on his team, I if I remember correctly. Like a bunch of guys had about as many home runs as he did. I don't think he led the team in home runs. doesn't mean he's a 
bad prospect, but it is certainly something to consider when it's like, well, everyone's doing this, right? Well, then it's like, you know, at a college or junior college or even high school, it's, well, you know, you face, you all face the same terrible pitching, you beat them up or you play at 8,000 feet above sea level or something. There's something to be said for just, you are that much better than all of your peers. The people who, especially your teammates, who all face the same pitching you did, the same competition you did, the same challenges, same environments, and you are you know, 40% better. I mean, in Judge's case, it's, you know, he's that much better than the whole rest of the league, obviously. But I think the general point stands that he is, he's not one home run, two home runs ahead of everyone else. He is destroying the field. And, you know, to me, I haven't sat down to look seriously at award balloting yet. I'll do that in the last week of the season. But I think the case for Judge, to me, is it should be less about, oh, the Yankees are in the playoffs and the or going to the playoffs and the Angels are not, which I don't care about. But it's that Judge is so far ahead of the rest of the field in particularly this one extremely important category. Yeah, yeah, and you look across the board, WRC Plus at 203 entering play on Thursday, Goldschmidt's at 189, Jordan Alvarez 173, Jose Altuve and Nolan Arenado round out the top five. They're at 159 and 158. I mean, there's even a pretty big gap atop that leaderboard. To be 103% better than a league average player, mind-blowing to see that over a full season. So enjoy it. Just enjoy it for what it is. Don't 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 go back down the path of baseball history and, and fight about who has the record because that's already been determined. Yeah, that's done. Those are facts. Yep. The records are facts. I, I said this around the tweet. That's historical revisionism. You cannot change what happened. These are facts. These are unquestioned. You can, if you host a crappy talk show at my former employer and you're just trying to find something to write, to talk about for eight minutes between commercial breaks, you can argue whether his record, those home runs are really legitimate or were they boosted by chemicals or blah, blah. Fine. Talk all you want. You don't change the facts. The facts are, this is like people saying, well, so-and-so wasn't my president. Well, you know, he was. You didn't vote for him. Trust me, right. I'm not happy the former guy was president, but he was president. He was. That's just a fact. That happened. It's a fact that Joe Biden won the election in 2020. That's a fact. And people who try to, you know, the the, the history of historical revisionism is pretty terrible, actually. Yeah. It's how we try to wash a lot of stuff out of history that we'd sort of rather not talk about or rather not acknowledge or just want to flat out deny. Now, I'm not saying changing, you know, denying Barry Bonds 73 home runs in a single season rises to that level, but it springs from the same source. I don't like history and therefore I am going to deny it and rewrite it. And I'm just never comfortable with that in any sphere. If you find yourself going in that direction, even in something as trivial as sports, think twice, think three times about what you're actually doing and what it says about you. You can talk about your discomfort. You can talk about your distaste, but you cannot deny Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs in one season, and no one else has hit more. Simple facts. Not hard to recognize that. Let's talk about some recent debuts, Keith. Uh, we saw Ryan Nelson come up for the Diamondbacks yes. earlier this week. And this is important. You, you kind of hit this in passing in our first part of our conversation. Mm-hmm. Context is really important. You brought this up with Corbin Carroll either last week or two weeks ago that the environments in the upper levels at AA and AAA in the Diamondback system – Amarillo and Reno are extremely hitter friendly. That's so nice. I remember things. These are important facts Mm -hmm. when it comes to analyzing their hitters. And I think sometimes we forget 
to do the same in the opposite direction for pitchers who had to deal with the hitter-friendly environments coming through, especially double I think triple A, everyone knows the most of the PCL parks play very hitter-friendly. The high-altitude ones in particular, Reno, Albuquerque, Salt Lake City. And those are the, the three big ones. I think they're all at least 4,000 feet above sea level. Albuquerque's crazy. I've, I have seen a high school game there. It's just a high school game at the AAA ballpark, like a high school showcase. Freddie Freeman was in high school. It shows you how long ago that was. I'm pretty sure he was in that game. Um, and Wendell Fairley, first rounder, who probably, if you're not a Giants fan, you might not have you might never have heard of the guy. Needless to say, he didn't make it. And then I've also I was also in Albuquerque once to see Blake Swihart. Um, I mean, that is that's like playing baseball in the moon. That is a whole different. And it's what people used to say about the Lancaster ballpark in California too. Like, that is. Like what I was saying earlier in the podcast about doesn't look like baseball. It's pretty different. You know, it's it's Coors Field without the humidor for folks who remember that. And it is it presents a real challenge to people. I think it presents challenges both ways of evaluating a player. Whether you're looking at data, it's also hard to scout in an environment like that. Did he that's a home run, but did he really hit it? Yeah, it looked like a pop-up. I never got to see a game at Lancaster, but I was told or I read like I read this that Lancaster had this constant jet stream yes blowing out the wind was always blowing out like, at 25 miles an hour put a giant fan like a space fan behind the plate right so you just have to hit it a little bit in the air and it just gets picked up and goes I mean we would see it's so funny to think this is what is it only about five years since that franchise went away but it feels like we're talking about ancient history here but, you know, you'd see 20 run scores there, not infrequently, yeah. you know, too often. And, you know, it would screw some guy. I mean, I think it completely derailed Daniel Bard's career, if I remember correctly. No, not Daniel Bard. Sorry, Mark Appel. Although Daniel Bard ended up in the Cal League for a year also. I think that screwed up his career. I just don't think that was Lancaster. But a couple of guys went, a couple of very talented guys went there. You could also argue it exposed some weaknesses for guys like that. But at the very least, I, I think it, you, you go there. You've had nothing but success your whole life. I think this could be true for Albuquerque if you're a pitcher. You go there and suddenly you got a 7 ERA. Yeah, I think that could mess with you a little bit. You'd start trying to change things to find more success as opposed to continuing to do the things that were working for you all the way up to that level and that may continue to work for you when you're no longer playing on like Ganymede or something. And then you get to, you can tell I've been reading, I just finished the Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson. Nobody should do that. Just don't, don't. Don't read those books. I mean, it's such a challenge for the clubs that have affiliates in those environments. And I've heard, I've not been to Amarillo, but I've heard there's a little bit of that wind effect too. It's less less consistent than it was in Lancaster, but there are enough days in Amarillo where the ball is just, the wind is blowing out, the ball flies. And you can see it in some of the home run totals given up by otherwise talented pitchers in Amarillo too. And it, I think it can, you know, it, it can mess up pitchers who are, and this is not a criticism of them, but otherwise they're fine. They get there and say, oh, wait, I can't do this anymore. I can't throw this particular pitch or I can't locate like that. I have to change something even when there maybe should be nothing to change. And you do worry about – I worry about that a lot with the Diamondbacks who have quite a few talented pitching prospects in their system. And their top two affiliates, Amarillo and uh, Reno, are both pretty strong hitting particularly home run environments. Yeah, and I think about it from – the context of pitches, breaking pitches, not moving the way you would expect them to. If you have a great slider and you have a great curveball 
and you're not getting the same movement once you reach that level in your home park, maybe even a bunch of road parks as well, depending on which of the leagues you're in, mm-hmm. you might have all sorts of problems. Your control might become a problem. Your strikeout rate might go down. Right. The home runs are going to go through the roof because of the environment. And then our evaluation to these players gets skewed because, well, yeah, they moved up and they faced a higher level of competition. So how much of this step back was facing better players and how much of it was the ballpark? And and how do we rectify that? It was Lancaster for Daniel Bard. I knew the Red Sox, they got stuck in the Cal League for two years. They lost the musical chairs. We used to have more of that in the affiliation. And I believe that's why they ended up buying the Salem Club. It's like, well, that's never happening again. Yeah, Bard went there, made five starts there, and walked 22 and 13 innings. And they bumped him down. I hope I'm getting the order of operations correct here. They bumped him down to low, and he continued to walk a ton of guys and threw a slew of wild pitches. Like, Bard had never been a plus control guy in college, but he wasn't this. This was like he turned into Jason Nabergal all, all of a sudden. And I, at least, will forever think it was the environment in Lancaster just got to him. And it's not a criticism. I know some people would say that. He should have been able to make that adjustment. If you've never pitched anywhere like that and have had nothing but success your entire life, and they just drop you onto the star, I'm going to stop making astronomical references here, but you know they drop you into that environment with probably no instruction. Because what the hell are you going to tell a guy? Hey, don't give up home runs. It looked to me like Bard. I I have vague memories 15 years ago, and I did not see him there. I'd seen him in college. Next time I'd seen him, I think he was pitching in relief at that they'd already just put him in the bullpen just to try to salvage something but what the heck were you going to tell a pitcher there and it it looked to me like he was probably just saying contact here is so much worse so much more dangerous than it was anywhere else i'm just going to try to pitch away from it as much as possible which is a terrible approach but i could also understand why a pitcher might resort to doing that um and then appel went there that's about 10 years later and there were other issues. Like, I think we know now Mark Appel's fastball was just nowhere near as special as it appeared to be. The sec- you know, if we'd had StatCast data at the time of the Mark Appel draft, he probably doesn't go first overall. He certainly doesn't go first overall. But still, and a guy with a pretty straight, hard, but straight, flat, you know, unremarkable fastball goes to a place like Lancaster and blows up. And what advice are you possibly going to give that guy in an environment like that where pitchers with even better stuff have struggled? Yeah, it's so hard to fix those problems in that environment on the fly, given the limited resources that teams have around those lower level clubs, especially uh, Daniel Bard, by the way, having a pretty amazing season in Colorado, a 215 ERA, right? 109 whip. He's racking up a bunch of saves, probably going to get to 30 saves this year. Yeah. He's 37 years old. He got that contract extension too, which for anybody who was dunking on the Rockies for that, that one's 100% just a good for the player. Oh, for sure. That guy was gone for seven years between big league appearances. So to come back and earn that and keep that role in its late 30s, that's that's great. Great story. I mean, hey, I hope Mark Appel is the second act like that. He got to the big leagues this year at 30, which to me is always, you know, especially for a guy taken anywhere, really anywhere in the top 10. Like, you hate to see that blank line when you look at a past draft on baseball reference. It's like, oh, he just never made it. Like m- most guys, if you're in the first round your odds of getting in the big leagues are extremely high. You may just get that cup of coffee. You may only get there because you're a first round and they're like, damn it, we're calling this guy up. I, that, I don't think that's the case with the Pell. Phillies didn't draft him. He walked away, obviously. He came back. Like, all the credit in the world to him. And I you know, I do 
think for a lot of these guys too. It, you know, if if this is it for a pal, I have no reason to think this is it. But if this were it, if he decided after the season, I'm done, it's got to be so much easier to walk away when you say, I got there. I got my day in the big leagues. I, w- I was a big leaguer. I, re- I will forever root for any guy who's in any player in the minors gets that one day in the big. You are a big leaguer for the rest of your life and you will die a big, they will say he was a big leaguer. Like that I think means a huge thing to these players and I will always refer even if it's a guy who I said was like a non-prospect I don't care he gets that day in the majors good for him he gets to carry that forever looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight? Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Anyway, you wanted to talk about Ryan Nelson, didn't you? Yeah, we covered a ton of ground. We went to Lancaster. And, it's true. And one of Jupiter's moons, one of the Galilean moons. Yeah, you really are in space right now, aren't you? Yes, in more ways than one. So Ryan Nelson looked really good in the debut. Command looked great. He was working quickly. The velo looked good. Mm-hmm. You know, and I were talking about this earlier in the week. One of the hardest things to see for us at least i'm curious if this is a, a tough judgment for for you to make as, as some of the actual scouting experience and training and real mm-hmm. background in this is fastball ride that life on the fastball watching on tv especially it's really hard to see the difference yeah. between a fastball that's too straight and mm-hmm. one that actually has that late life but i thought that to me looked like nelson had that extra late life that you want to see on a fastball it wasn't 95 96 in this sort of hittable plan. It looked like it had good carry, again, from television. But what's your overall report on Nelson? Because I do think people could be overlooking him a little bit since the ratios got blown up pretty good at AAA this year. And prior to that, he had good results pretty much everywhere he'd pitched. The Diamondbacks have several of these pitching prospects have kind of interesting backstories like Brandon Fatt, F-P-F-A-A-D-T, was at a D2 school. And has emerged as one of their best pitching prospects. Also, Nelson, I believe, was a reliever because he was a two-way player at University of Oregon, and so he did. He was a really good athlete, but it seemed like a. It was certainly no slam dunk that he was going to be able to make the shift to the rotation and show enough stuff to be able to work in that role. I think that question is answered now. And I actually, the thing that I was most impressed by, he didn't throw that many sliders. But it's really good. I knew he had a good slider. But that, And it's also, I think, a lot easier to tell from TV angles. Whereas if you're asking about fastball movement, ride, I think it's way easier to see that from behind the plate. Now, maybe that's just because I'm accustomed to being there. But either way, for me, I would, I could definitely, I definitely feel more comfortable speaking about a slider, especially like his, which I think he only, I pulled up his baseball savant page here. Yeah, it says he threw only 10 sliders the entire night out of 87 pitches. Like, I'd like to see him use that pitch more, actually, um, because I think it, I, first of all, I think it'll remain effective the more he 
even if he throws it twice as much. And that to me is an out pitch. That's a, that that looks like a plus pitch for him, and that's going to be a huge weapon, and it's going to make him really dominant, I think, against right-handed batters. Um, he has a four-pitch mix. He showed all four. That was great to see. You want to at least see the makings of that. There are very few starters who can work without some kind of third pitch for guys on the opposite side. I will just say, you know, sort of shout out to Spencer Strider there, who is doing it. He's killing lefties. He's basically doing it without a changeup. It's amazing. Um, but the rule of thumb is, yeah, you generally want to have something change up splitter maybe a cutter and i think nelson's got enough of that but to me so to me it is more hey this guy's off speed stuff is really good chance to make him like a mid rotation or better starter depending on you know command and control which so far so good and how that fastball continues to play um which what we saw the fastball was very effective in one start i don't like drawing a lot of conclusions off one start especially because i don't think this is the pitch mix going forward um yeah i would love to get a look at him from behind the plate at some point just to see what it actually looks like. But the hitters do tell you, you know, we'll see as how that how hitters respond to the fastball going forward also. Because if it's true, like it does if it does have you know some kind of you know plus movement can be in a lot of different shapes. If that continues to be true, especially at the velocity he's working at, yeah, I think he's got a chance to be I would say an above average starter. I don't want to go too high, but there's there's some ceiling left here given the sort of limited experience as a starter, athleticism, and a chance for four legitimate major league average pitches there. Now, this group, you mentioned Fott. He's having, I think, a very good year in the minors, and it's strange to say that for a guy that had a 453 ERA and a 125 whip at double A. But again, context. That freaking Amarillo, park. Yeah. 144 Ks and 105 and a third innings. That tells you a lot more than the ratios do in this case. And it's not crazy huge stuff like nelson has better stuff and dre jameson in that system has better that was sort of the the, the, that trio of starters were all kind of moving at about the same pace up the system and it looked like you know not nelson got there first it's not necessarily saying he's best he just he he was probably closest to being ready fought does it more with um he's more of the command and control stuff is fine and he's continued to miss bats even in Reno. He actually pitched, pitched better in Reno than he did in Amarillo, which is kind of probably gives you a little sense of what's going on, going on in Amarillo too. But that, um, I don't think he has the ceiling of the other two guys, but he might be the most reliable. It might be that just Fat is just a good number four starter and you're a big, durable kid, throws a ton of strikes, takes the ball 30 times a year. And that's really valuable. That's great, especially for a guy who was a you know fifth round pick out of a D two school, Bellarmine in Kentucky, which is actually transitioning to D one, but they were D two when they drafted him. Uh, that's great. To me, it, I I love what they've done in the system because they have pitching depth, which is a hard thing to have, and they've got lots of different kinds, right? They've got the you know high upside guy, you know Jameson, huge stuff, might be a reliever in the end. Nelson, kind of in between, but really athletics. So you could sort of bet on future improvements fought much more of a reliable this is you what you see is what you get but that's probably a major league starter towards the back of a rotation and they have other arms too i just that trio of guys all college drafts were kind of moving up the system together and i think all three of those guys um you know obviously assuming health which is you know almost goes without saying i think at this point but i think all three of those guys end up in the D-backs rotation at some point next year. Jameson has struggled this year, but I also wonder to what extent that's just about Reno being a terrible park in which to pitch. Because really a huge, he's given up 
almost two home runs per nine innings at, in Reno. And I don't think that's what he's going to continue to do in the big leagues. Yeah, this is an exciting young team because uh, they do have a, a lot of, of great pieces already in place. A few more coming. I'm with you on the, the timetables for these pitchers. It seems like it's perfectly laid out because with you know, Zach Gallen looking like a but at least a good enough pitcher to, to be a number one, even yeah, if he's not he a is. top 10 pitcher league wide. He's very good. I, I got to take the L on that one. I mean, I'll t- he'd still have one left, right? I take one of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's really, really good. You know, that even at the time that the Diamondbacks, tra- they traded Jazz Chisholm for him, who's a really good player and I think still has a ton of upside. And the Marlins are very happy with their end of the deal. I thought the D-backs gave up, some, gave up too much upside there. And I remember speaking to one of their front office people at the time. He said, we think Gallon's fastball is really going to play, that it is a special fastball. They were right. They're absolutely right. He is a better pitcher than I thought. And I saw him when he was still in the Cardinals system, and I thought, it's kind of just a you know, command and control, fourth starter-ish. But where's the upside? Well, it's because the fastball was pretty special. It's a lot more special than it looked. You know, but it's one of those, I think, also as he went along through the minors, too, and even in the majors, the hitters told you. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Watch the reactions. Look at the swings that that a hitter is able to get with a pitch like that, because it's not always the velo. It's not. No, but it's over the last two years in baseball savant for people who don't know, they assign run values to the pitches based on the actual results. Um, since the start of 2021, his four seamer is at negative 25 runs. So 25 runs essentially saved. I mean, that is it's a lot. pretty elite. You know, for what is, in theory, the easiest pitch to hit, right? I mean, you're, you're, you know, that's just comparing it to other four-seamers, not comparing it to all pitches. But he is getting a lot of bad contact and a lot of swings and misses on the pitch that most hitters would rather see. Yeah, throw me a fastball. <laughs> <laughs> and Zach Gallant's like, okay. Let's talk about the Cubs for a moment because there was a point on this show earlier this year probably right before the season started, I suggested that maybe the Cubs would be better than people thought. So and I, I was very wrong about that. It has that. not worked out. No, no, that was not one of my best predictions for this season. So Hayden Wesneski comes up. They got him in a trade with the Yankees back at the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. More than Wesneski specifically, I just started thinking about this team for next year. And How many starters do they actually have currently in their organization who are going to make a meaningful number of starts for them in 2023. I mean, Stroman's under contract. Obviously, he's there. Fine. Yep. Justin Steele's had a nice year. Keegan Thompson, I think, has had a reasonably good season as well. So they probably have spots for them. Mm-hmm. Kyle Hendricks is healthy. Sure, he's still a starter. Mm-hmm. But of the younger guys, I mean, Wesneski came up and debuted as a reliever. Uh, Adrian Sampson, to me, just looks kind of like a, a guy you're using while you're rebuilding rather than someone you're going to have in your rotation long term. Yep. Javier Assad's getting some turns lately. We've seen Caleb Killian this year. They obviously drafted Kate Horton early. Looking at this total package of pitchers throughout the organization, how many quality big league starters do the Cubs currently have in the organization for next season? The problem is they have, I don't know, like six fifth starters. Right, they have a lot of guys who would be. If that's your fifth starter, you're you're pretty happy with it. How many guys do they have who are who should actually be in the first four spots in a rotation for a team that is even thinking about being a 500 team? Three, two, three. Stroman, Hendricks, if healthy. Who else? Who else is more than that? 
I like Wesneski. I would like to see them give him a shot as a starter. He's He might be a reliever in the end, but I would like to give him that chance at least. None of the other guys you mentioned for me is more than a back-end starter. You know, I would bet the under on Steele. I would bet the under on um, Thompson in terms of repeating their performances for this from this year. Samson, yeah, I would probably bet the under on pretty much all of those guys. I would bet we get, you know, a better year from Hendricks and probably a little better year from Stroman, and that's it. So I don't know what that means for them. Do they go outside the organization to get another starter? Because they're, I mean, this Cubs farm system has come back pretty quickly. Their A-ball clubs are really quite loaded, but they are kind of lacking on the pitching side. Um, they've got a, they're not completely devoid of it, but there's not enough currently in the system. Um, and the guy I thought was I saw in spring training who was absolutely electric, Cole Franklin, has had just a miserable year with commit. It's just command. I've heard the stuff is just as good, but this guy who was really a strike thrower before the two year layoff just came back and he has really had a lot of trouble um, just locating. It's actually interesting. He finally first time all year he had two straight outings without a walk in his last two. I don't know if those are going to be his actual last two outings of the year. Nice to end on a high note, but still, Cole Franklin with that kind of stuff shouldn't be having a seven ERA, and I don't think you're penciling him in for any sort of role next year. By stuff, he's one of the five best starters probably in the entire organization. Doesn't matter if you can't locate, and that is sorry, he's in high A, not double A. Um, that's I just don't know where the short term pitching is from is going to come from, and I don't know if they would want to. Yeah, I love the fact that they went after Strowman. Do they go do that again? try to find some other high-end starter on a short-term deal and figure that just tides them over until some of, you know, until Kate Horton and Jordan Wicks and maybe Cole Franklin turns it around and maybe Wesneski has some kind of role until these guys actually establish themselves as starters. It's a little hard to see the path forward. I know that Cubs lineup in about three years is going to be really strong. I have very little doubt about that. Rotation's a question. They need some guys to take steps forward or they're going to need to go outside the organization. Yeah, I just thought the addition of Stroman and Seiya Suzuki back during the winter was a sign of more to come and another big step forward and just hasn't turned out that way. And it puts them in a weird spot for this winter. Yes, and I like the fact that they were a team that was not a clear contender, but they were, we're going to spend some money. We're not going to suck. They made some effort to not be terrible. They actually tried and trust people killed the Ricketts for lots of reasons. And I'm on board with some of those reasons. However, they didn't roll out a $40 million team. They didn't just trade everybody and say, it's fine, we're going to lose 100 games this year. Now, they're not going to, they're going to lose 90 games this year, but it's not for lack of spending, at least. They went out and acquired two pretty significant players through free agency this winter, and you know, I hope that doesn't deter any other clubs, any other owners from doing the same. I hope nobody looks at that and says, didn't work for the Cubs, why would we do that? Because you don't, I don't want to see teams, I don't want to see these 110 lost teams anymore. But could, uh, these teams can all afford to spend a little bit more, especially if it's just a matter of, hey, go out and get a – you just need a, a durable innings guy. I think that helps you developmentally anyway and makes your club a lot more tolerable to watch. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And I, with Wesneski, just to sort of close the book on him, five scoreless out of the bullpen in his debut, eight Ks. I think you're right. They're going to give him a pretty long opportunity to be a starter. I hope so. Next I, year, probably in 2024 as well, just given the timetables for everybody else. I was on the fence starter reliever with him. 
I know scouts who think he's a starter, and I know scouts who think he's much more likely to be a reliever. Um, you know, if you uh, as as always, if you're on the fence, if you were actually betting, you would say reliever. But if you're the club that has that player, you absolutely say start. You try him as a start. Let him fail as a starter first, and then go from there. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra-soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash theathletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Post-operative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Let's talk about Tristan Cassis for a moment. He is now up for the Red Sox, and my fellow nerds and I from the fantasy baseball corner of the internet were hoping to see Cassis even earlier this season. I think he had an injury during his time at AAA that slowed him down a little bit, and it's really more just a question of, is he a finished product? Do you agree with the timetable for him to be up right now? And, and how quickly do you think he's going to produce? I am good with that. Good with them bringing him up because they're also in a situation where they kind of needed to get a look at him to see if they're comfortable giving him the job next year. I mean, they, they actually sent Bobby Dahlbeck down and nothing against Dahlbeck personally, but it, it's not working. Right? It's just, that is just not happening. Um, and they gave him, they gave Dalbeck a lot of time. They gave a lot of guys who just did not perform time at first base this year. And I think, yeah, they, this is still the Red Sox. I am sure they plan to contend next year. Give Cassis a look and you know, more for the in person evaluation. I'm not, I don't care that much what he does in about, you know, 25 games or so. But do you, are you comfortable handing him the first base job for next year? If he's the one rookie 
you're integrating to the big league lineup very early next year. Great. But you want to actually see him first before doing that. And I think that is the part that's absolutely the right strategy. And they may look and say, we're not comfortable giving him the job right away. We think he's not going to be ready until June or July. I doubt that's the case, but it's more data. It's more information just to have him up in front of you facing big league pitching in the clubhouse and see what you think. And I would much rather teams do that, especially if you're a team with plans to contend for the following season. Get Use September as an evaluation opportunity. I actually think that the 28-man roster limit for September is too low. It hurts major league clubs that might have a bunch of prospects they want to look at in September. They might actually want to turn the roster over a little bit more. And it limits the number of these guys you can call up, or you have to take a Bobby Dahlbeck, who's not played very well, but he's been in the big leagues for you all season. Well, sorry, we've got to send you down now because we only have so many roster spots to go around. So it seems like, uh, I mean, that's pretty anti-player in the end, I think is not great for clubs that have a bunch of prospects uh, that they want might want to take a look at. But in the Red Sox case, I think it was really just Cassis more than anyone else. He's the one guy who should be able to help them next year. And I, and I, I think he will. I think at the end, they will decide we're comfortable giving this guy the bulk of our playing time at first base next year. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense just based on where they're at. A team that probably will spend a good bit of money this offseason, maybe will extend. Uh, we talked about Devers and, and Bogarts, their contract situations a few weeks ago on the show. Mm-hmm. A lot of decisions to be made in Boston, especially now that it looks like it's truly five teams all ready to compete in the division simultaneously. That? Yeah, it's, it's great. Great Thoughts to see prayers, five guys. teams in the mix. Good luck, everybody. Cody Morris uh, getting a chance for the Guardians right now. Keith, without injuries, I feel like we could have seen him a lot earlier this season. He would have been one of the first pitchers up based on quality of stuff and minor league results. But injuries have really been a major part of his story to this point in his professional career. That's a good question because he was kind of a lower, right? He was a lower draft pick. I don't think I, I'm not sure I'd have had him. I wonder if he was on my Cleveland prospects Going back in 2019, I would actually have to go back and take a look. But he was obviously completely off the radar going into last year and only pitched really less than half of the season. Last year, he was good enough in 2019 that I think there was reason to think he might move somewhat quickly. And then he got hurt. Um, and the pandemic, obviously, actually, that's where I might be flipping the order of operations there. But I also will say this. This is having just seen Tanner Bibby two nights ago, and we're recording this on a Thursday. I'm supposed to go see Kevin Williams tonight, too. I am not going to bet against a pitching, starting pitching prospect developed by Cleveland, particularly a college guy who throws strikes. They seem to do things with those guys. You know, I think back to Shane Bieber. Shane Bieber was just a very ordinary, you know, command and control back-end starter prospect coming out of college. And he won a Cy Young. And Savali and Plezak and heck now Bibby. Bibby was like 89-92 in college, I think. He was ninety mostly 94-97 for me the other night. Cleveland's doing some things right. So I will say I'm, I want to reserve a little bit on Morris to see just how different is he now. Because he's barely pitched since the end of 2019. You know, he only what did he throw 61 innings last year, 21 innings this year. I mean, the guy's got bar- he's got barely any pro experience at all. Pandemic. Obviously, pandemic happened, injury happened. But still, that is pretty amazing to get to the big leagues that quickly with that few innings, at least. 
Yeah, very good strikeout and walk rates, though, everywhere Cody Morris has yes. been. A couple injuries, Zach Plesak punching the ground and breaking his hand, Aaron Savale having a, a forearm injury. Yeah, Waskari yeah. Noah did it, broke his hand, and then gave himself Tommy John. Not actually from that, but still. Yeah, well, it started the spiral that took him out of the rotation and eventually led him back to AAA this year. And yeah, a lot of... Uh, a lot of bad turns for Waskari Noah since uh, since that happened. Fun fact, by the way, I have never, as far as I can tell, written a word on Cody Morris. Is that really possible? He's seventh rounder, so he just just kind of snuck in there. I don't think I did. I, I am looking furiously. Yeah, I had nothing on him. I mean, not that I had never heard of him, but I have never written. I checked my... I went back to my ESPN writings. I have never written a word on Cody Morris. Hey, well, sorry. No time like the present, right? It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. Well, now he's been. Now he's actually pitched a little in the big leagues. So, oh yeah, here's what he is. Absolutely. <laughs> I had him totally figured out. Not really. Yeah. No, but he's as you said. Like the guy throws a ton of strikes, and this is Cleveland has a type. Um, I was actually chatting with a scout at Bibby's game the other night. Like they clearly had their archetype. They are college, uh, college pitchers with command and control for for their age i'm i'm guessing some other characteristics there must be other things that they're looking for because i could show you lots of college pitchers with command and control cleveland is has clearly has certain characteristics they're looking for and it, it is their philosophy is this is the type of pitcher with whom we've had success which to me is great like if you're especially a lower payroll team too. finding a core competency like that and having scouting and player development working together scouting you go find these guys and the player development we have our program for this particular type of player and then you know it won't all work out but many of them become finished products and able to help the big league club and or useful in trade at some point and they have done this with a lot of guys and i can honestly say i think as a group that uh, I have underestimated their pitchers as a group. And I think a lot of it is because player development has done such a great job because I would go off, here's what they were, you know, when they were drafted or maybe after one year in pro ball and you see them two, three years later, it's, oh, they got a lot better. I think they're finding a way to take a group of pitchers that many people would say are less projectable. They're more finished products because they're college guys, they're older and they have the the control and they have maybe a good pitch mix, but they're finding guys that could still add velocity. At 22, 21, 22, yeah, that is, well, again, a ton of credit to those guys. They're not the only ones who can do it. They've done it better than just about anyone else. Every, Almost every organization, most organizations, have had a couple, you know, one or two guys like that. They get him in, the velocity picks up. Kid does it on his own, you know, late growth spur, whatever the reason is. Cleveland has such a consistent track record of doing that that even though trust me I've asked people no one wants to give they don't want to give away their secrets <laughs> I don't know what I would do I mean obviously I'd write a story it's not like I could, could like go around the corner and be like hey you want to throw harder like, that's <laughs> but you know Keith Law's gas camp yes exactly um, they, they they clearly have a formula that they're working off of and to me it is one, it's just great to see. It's fun because you go see their clubs. It's like, he's better. He's better. He's better. He's It's pretty good. Um, and by the way, Bo, uh, Bo Naylor also having an unbelievable year for them. It's a really good system. Uh, but 
other clubs should be looking and say, we need our thing. Maybe it won't be the same thing that Cleveland has, but you better have a thing like that. The way the Dodgers have done this with swing changes. They've had a lot of successes with guys like that. And they even pick up guys essentially for nothing like Max Muncy and Chris Taylor or just take guys who are a little undervalued in the draft and get them out and get small changes to the swing and suddenly massive boost to their value. Every club needs to find a thing like that. But I think it's even more important when you're a Cleveland and you're not going to be spending big money on free agents at the major league level. You're just going to have to build your own rotation from within. They're doing it again. Let's talk about a few hidden breakouts, Keith. Just a handful of players that have really stood out in a good way over the course of this season. There's one in Seattle, Cal Raleigh. At a glance, you see a 210, 283, 492 line. That last number, very impressive. The first two, not as much so. Not great, yeah. 23 homers this year. And if you look at the slash line after about the first month of the season, it's quite a bit better. It seemed like he opened the year in a slump and it's just been consistently a player that's better than what you're seeing in that season-long result. This seems legit, right? They have their long-term catcher in Seattle, at least until Harry Ford comes up and maybe crowds things up a little bit in a few years. They have their medium-term catcher. Can we go with that? Like, I don't know it's how long this lasts. And I actually thought the one thing Raleigh hasn't done that I kind of thought he'd do more of, I thought there'd be more walks. Like I thought he'd be the Gallo-ish type of player behind the plate. So low average. The OPP's not great, but it's boosted by better walk rates than what Raleigh has shown and real power. Um, and he's adequate behind the plate. I don't think he's going to be any better than that. He's a really big kid. And I do, I mean, even in college, he was at uh, Florida state and I remember seeing him and I actually liked, I ranked him, I think as a third rounder, they took him in the third round. Um, but his detractors at the time all said, man, that body does not look like it's going to age well. Is he going to really last that long in an injury-prone position to begin with? I buy all that. Is this guy still a major league everyday catcher at 30? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably bet against that. But for the next couple of years, I think he could be pretty productive. I would like to see a little bit more of that patient just gets more experience. You know, he may always strike out too much to, to be you know more than just a you know kind of a solid regular. He's, I mean, he, he's got an outside chance to get to a four-war season this year, which a lot of that is the positional boost. But still, that's really good. And could he be a consistent two-and-a-half to three-war player for the next couple of years? Yeah, I'd buy that. Let's go back to Arizona for a moment. How about Jake McCarthy doing this as a 25-year-old now, just turned 25 in July? I, I like what we're seeing from him. There's power, there's speed, pretty nice slash line along the way, too. It was hard to really make anything of what he was doing at AAA Reno for all the reasons we yeah. talked about earlier, just in video game numbers there, 65% better than, than league average, which certainly means something. But how does he fit into this increasingly crowded group of young Arizona outfielders? Yeah, he was a first-round pick, or supplemental first-round pick back in 2018. And his brother was Joe McCarthy, who was also a reasonably high pick, bounced around a little bit uh, out of UVA. And like a lot of players coming out of UVA too. I think it took him some time to unlearn the habits from going through that program. But people always liked Jake was the better athlete of the two. There was a lot of belief he could hit and he could run and that he'd come into some power. And I actually think there could be a little bit more than what we've seen here. I think the biggest thing for Jake is that he just got fully healthy this year. Um, and, you know, he had a cup of coffee last year. I think that experience probably helped him. Maybe a little bit of why he got back to went to Reno and just destroyed it this year. Um, there could be another gear of offensive performance there, but I think he's established himself as like he could be a regular for somebody for a while. 
of all the outfielders that they have up and coming up, he's probably got the least ceiling. He might be the guy who gets squeezed out by other players who can do more. Obviously, Corbin Carroll's the guy you build around. Um, But I could see McCarthy being a solid, cheap regular for them for a couple of years, and then someone they end up putting into a trade to go somewhere else. Or maybe, maybe he does get to that extra gear of power and gets to more like, I don't know, 15 to 18 homers a year, pushing 20. I'd be surprised if he got to 20 home runs. Uh, but, th- you know, that would be enough to make him an above average regular. And he's the one who sticks around. And maybe someone like Alec Thomas, who has a little less value to the Diamondbacks if Carroll's in center and Thomas is, ends up pushed to a corner, even though Thomas, I think, is a really, really good player. Maybe he's somebody who they, they end up looking at trading. Not because they think there's anything lacking with him, but because he has more value to another club. They're in a really, really good spot. The system is good. The major league roster is getting better. And, um, you know, and I, I obviously I do have a lot of faith in the folks running that team because I think they've made some pretty consistently good decisions. They took over an organization that was kind of in a shambles and have built a really competitive farm system and a major league club that, they're, you know, they're probably going to fall a little short of 500 this year, but they've been much more competitive. And I think that will continue, they will get back to contention, if not next year than the year after that with the continued influx of players coming up from the system. Yeah, I've got a, another small move they made that's caught my eye in the last few weeks. It's Emmanuel Rivera. That trade that they made with the Royals on deadline day didn't really move the needle for anybody. I think that was Luke Weaver going to Kansas City, mm-hmm. Rivera going to Arizona. He's got a 10.6% barrel rate this year, more power since the trade. The K rate's a little high, 25%, but if he's a play two or three positions around the infield guy with some thump, that's actually pretty valuable. It adds versatility for them and makes it easier to continue to break in players as more young guys emerge. Uh, Just curious what you think about Rivera as maybe an overlooked deadline addition. He really started to come into some more thump out of the pandemic. He was here in Wilmington in, I think it was 18, uh, back when the Blue Rocks were still the Royals affiliate. It's like, there's just no sock there. You know, he thought he could be a fringe big leaguer. Because, of, you know, obviously because he could handle the infield fine and put the bat on the ball enough. But there was just no oomph. And he came out of the pandemic. He's got more than 30 home runs total between majors and minors in the last two years. We just over, I'm just trying to do the math real quick, 616 plate appearances. And what are we at? 20, 34 homers? I think that's correct. Over the last two years, like, okay, that's a different player. That's a very different player than the one I saw here in 18. Um, and he started, and he's just making more consistent hard contact too. I don't think this is just a mistake hitter. I think he's actually a different player at 25, 26. That's a pretty shrewd pickup for them. Even if he just ends up, like, I thought he was more like a backup, maybe even a fringe backup. Now he's somebody who plays every day for a couple of clubs, um, which is pretty, yeah, that pretty nice addition. Yeah, didn't even think twice about the trade the day that it happened, but he has popped up on a few second-half leaderboards in the time since uh, five homers since the deadline. Yeah, absolutely. He's interesting. And I can live with that. You know, the strikeout rate's under, since he got to Arizona, it's under 30%. Yeah, I can't believe that's the bar we're looking at. But yeah, you can live with that. And a guy who's who's doing a bunch of other things, sure, he could play every day for a little while. He's probably that guy who, when you're contending, you're saying, we could use someone a little better over there. But for now, pretty good. Guy who would have value is going to start for a couple of teams at least. Um, yeah, maybe this, I, he's 26. I'm disinclined to think there's any more 
production coming from him, but I don't want to rule it out. Maybe this one falls into the better late than never category. Jorge Mateo, who at a glance, when you look at the slash line, still a 275 OBP, sub 400 slug. He's been very good going back to the start of June, playing great defense. What is Jorge Mateo as a player at this point in his career? There's always been tools. Are you buying some of the adjustments that he's made over the course of this season, even though the overall numbers for the season still raise a lot of questions? Yeah, I can't with the, like, that, he has a 275 OBP and baseball reference has him at three war. I just have such a hard time with that. (laughs) Like, it should just be zero. I'm sorry. I don't care what else you do. If your OBP is that low, you're just you're just a zero war player. It's I'm sorry, it's just in the rule. It's in the formula, actually. I just can't with that. Yeah, he can. He's actually turned himself. I didn't think he'd be this good at shortstop. Um, you know, credit to him for working on it. That approach is just kind of untenable. Um, and and it's there's not much thump there. Like it's like he's even even his slug is a little bit boosted by the fact he's got some speed doubles and some speed triples mixed in there. They've got other shortstops coming. Gunnar Henderson can play shortstop, or he could be an elite defender at third. Joey Ortiz is in, has been destroying double-A in the second half. He can really play shortstop. Mateo may just be extra for them at some point. And I think Mateo's future is to bounce around as the shortstop, the everyday shortstop for bad teams that don't have a shortstop. Don't have one there, don't have one coming imminently, but he can fill in. Because you always, you know, certainly if you're, a rebuilding team, nice to have a strong defensive player at an anchor position like that. A lot of people will tell you it helps the rest of the infield. I certainly believe that it can help your pitchers. And I think Mateo could do that for a while. Bounce around like um, you know Ray Sanchez, who's a different type of player. But Ray Sanchez had a pretty good long career because someone was always willing to say, hey, just come play shortstop. We don't really care what else you do. Um, I could see that for Mateo. I think the Orioles need better for next year. And you know, I don't think the Orioles the Orioles want to contend next year. It's not out of the question that they will. They're going to need to boost the rotation, but I think they will. They need they shouldn't be carrying any two seventy five OBP guys. That's just a sink at the bottom of your lineup, and they should be better. They they can be better than that. Yeah, it's weird because I have the same kind of reaction to players like this, and I think you're almost describing Jonathan VR's career power speed. When a team's rebuilding, he's great because he's out there and you can play him every day and kind of an exciting player to watch even. But then when you're good, the flaws become too much. I think Mateo's offensive profile is similar to Adelis Garcia with a little less power, right? I mean, Adelis Garcia barrels the ball almost twice as much as Jorge Mateo does. But both of those players are good defenders when you play them in the right spot. You play Garcia in a corner, he's a good defender. Play Mateo, he's a good defender. And I think that's something that I need to keep in the back of my mind when I'm looking at a player that has the the slash line that makes me cringe a little bit. Like that's because that's enough to drive playing time. That's enough for someone to add two or three war value. And if you have strength everywhere else on your roster, I think those players can actually hang around longer than we used to think they were able to hang around. I absolutely agree with that. By the way, I'm just going to give a little Joey Ortiz love here, too, because he was my guy coming into the year. I'm like, he's borderline top 100 prospect. He can play sure. He changed his swing during the pandemic, got a good bit stronger, completely different player than he had. I'd seen him in 19. I was like, that's not going to work. 
he went and the Orioles people don't even take a lot of credit. They said he did it. He went home. He made these changes. He came back a different player and then he got hurt a month into last season. He got off to a real slow start this year. He's actually since now been promoted to AAA. I admit the arbitrary endpoint here, but just July 1st to now, 56 games. He's hitting 357, 422, 625, almost as many walks as strikeouts, 12 homers in 56 games, and he can really play shortstop. That's a good player. And this is why you don't need Jorge Mateo. And I, you know, I can understand Orioles fans saying, well, we like him. He's been really good for us this year. I get it. You have better coming. I mean, you have two better guys coming because Gunnar Henderson could play shortstop. I like him better at third because I think it's a 50-55 shortstop versus a 70 defender at third. But if they want to say Gunnar Henderson at shortstop, even if he's just an average defender, might win an MVP award at some point. Okay, I understand that too. But you have multiple better options than Jorge Mateo. And, And that system is really strong. And one of the reasons it's really strong is because they've got depth at a couple of critical positions. Yeah, I guess the other way you could look at it, too, is Mateo could just become a bench player if he stays in Baltimore. Yeah. And just bring him off the bench. He's your backup. You know he can play a good shortstop. You lose a shortstop for a little while, you're fine. You throw him in there in the bottom third of the lineup. Don't lose anything defensively. Life is good. So if you're expecting a full season's worth of playing time for Mateo again, it may have to come somewhere else because of the young talent that that Keith is uh, bringing up here. Everyone knows about Henderson. I feel like fewer people are on Ortiz at this point, and it's been an, such a good year for this Orioles system, as we've said many times on this show. Yep, absolutely. I think it's one of the reasons I bang the drum a bit for Ortiz. Also, the season line is fine, but I don't think it gives you a sense of what Ortiz is really capable of. If I hadn't seen Ortiz talk to people, you know, know that the swing really works, and the, everything supports what he's doing in the second half, points it. This guy is a big league regular, and maybe a chance for a better, better than average big league regular, but he gets a little bit less discussed for a lot of reasons. Also, because their system has so many guys. Their their system, it's still very hitter heavy, but that list of position players in that Orioles system is incredibly deep and gives them a lot of options, I think. They could put together quite a package to go acquire big name starting pitcher from another club this winter if they're so inclined, if the right guy is available also. Yeah, very interesting to see what they're going to do over the course of the winter as they try to take another big step forward in 2023. We have to go on our way out. I'll let everyone know you can get a subscription to The Athletic for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me on Twitter at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend.